an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello and welcome back to the Life After God podcast. This is a special bonus episode. My name is Ryan Bell and I'm your host. I'm very honored to be joined today by Gretchen Koch. Gretchen is a friend who I've never met and this is the sort of the era that we're in, isn't it, where we have all these friends we've never met. Um, and hopefully little by little, I get to meet so many of you that I've, uh, run across on social media and on the web and through the podcast through the years. And I, it's like, I have a list of, uh, lovely people that I get to meet once in a while as I crisscross the country and whenever I have the chance. And Gretchen is one of those. And, uh, in a moment, we're going to have a, a conversation, but just uh, by way of a brief introduction, Gretchen is um, she's an academic. She has her PhD in the study of religion. We can talk about that maybe a little bit later. Um, she is a political cartoonist, which is uh, super fun. I support her on Patreon just a little tiny bit and would encourage you to do the same. And we'll uh, tell you all about how to do that in just a minute. And um, she also has a very unique story that is what brings us to this specific conversation today. And we'll start off with this and, and see where we go. But you may have noticed uh, lately that abortion is back in the news and the anti-abortion crusaders are uh, emboldened, re-emboldened by the Trump administration and recent changes in the Supreme Court and all sorts of uh, influences from the Christian far right and something that I thought was in my political past is now quite, again, in my, in my political, in all of our political present. Um, and it so happens that it is also the 10-year anniversary of the assassination of Dr. George Tiller, uh, 10 years and three days ago, in his own church while he was serving as a volunteer, collecting the offering and handing out bulletins in the foyer of the church, uh, he was gunned down by an assassin, a far-right um, religious fundamentalist who did not like the work he was doing. And it turns out that Gretchen is, uh, unfortunately, really closely related to that story. Uh, so, Gretchen, thank you so much for, for being on the show today on such short notice. I really appreciate you joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here and talk to you. Since I've dropped that enticing bit of uh, news, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to be associated with the assassination of George Tiller? <laughs> that sounds so ominous. <laughs> like, like you. <laughs> the- uh, well, let's see. Um, I'm going to go back in time a little bit. Um, the uh, the big Summer of Mercy protests that some people may dimly remember happened in 1991 when I was only, I think in eighth grade. Uh, and I wasn't very conscious of it at the time. Um, 
I do remember going by the clinic and seeing all these people uh, crowded out in front of it and sometimes spilling out in the street and being curious about that. But I didn't really have any idea what abortion meant or what reproductive rights meant at the time. Um, And then so around that time, uh, George Tiller got attacked. Uh, he was shot in both arms uh, by an anti-abortion activist. Um, I think that was a year or two after the Summer of Mercy protests. And the person who did that went to prison and uh, I believe is still there. Then um, the su- just real and- quick, though, the Summer mm-hmm. of Mercy protests, were, were they were on those protesters were... Were they the anti-abortion protesters or the women, yes. the rights protest? Okay, so these were Christian anti-abortion protesters. Yes, it was organized by the uh, Operation Rescue organization, which mm. at the time was headed up by Randall Terry. Uh, I think he has uh, uh, divorced himself or or been kicked out, and and it's been the leadership has changed somewhat. I'm not too clear on the details of that though, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, they were doing things that you would associate with a with a large scale protest, like uh, handcuffing themselves together and lying down in the street, pretending mm. to be dead bodies and stuff like that. And a lot of them got arrested. Um, and then they um, let me see, where do I go forward in history? Um, that at that time. Um, George Tiller's family had already uh, joined Reformation Lutheran. Um, My family joined in 1990, and I think they joined in 85 or so. Um, And they joined because they had gotten evicted from their previous church, Holy Cross, which was another Lutheran church. Um, But they just decided that they didn't want an abortion provider as part of their congregation and Mm. asked the family to leave. So they came to our church and uh, I did ask my parents about uh, if, if there had been uh, that they knew of any sort of discussion or, or deliberation that happened at Reformation when the Tiller family joined and they said, no, Hmm. that they were just accepted and welcomed there. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the protests happening outside the church until after the church relocated in 1996 Um, that was about as I was ending high school. And I remember the protesters would show up every Sunday, uh, including on Christmas Eve, as I, as I wrote about in the comic, they would stand out there with their truck that had, uh, I, in order to do the comic, I, I did quite a bit of Googling to remind myself of, of what everything looked like. And I Googled, um, abortion truck, I think. (laughs) And the number of examples that I saw was staggering. Oh man. Uh, There's clearly not just one abortion truck. They had their own version and, and I saw one that looked a lot like it. And so I modeled the one in my comic after that and tried to make it as vague as possible because I don't, I don't want to gross out people who are looking at my comic like they were grossed out to see the, the truck. That's not, the idea right uh, but the idea is to get across that they were literally there standing outside shouting at us through bullhorns and there wasn't much they the police could do because they would park on a public street um 
And so the police would show up sometimes and just monitor things and make sure they didn't try and enter the church or actually lay hands on anyone. But that went on for a very long time. I, I went off to college and came back and I, I had pretty much stopped attending church at that point, but I still with my, I still went uh, with my family on Christmas hmm. and they were there. Every year, every, every weekend, every Sunday. Uh, that that I know of, yeah. Wow, and and just to be clear, you referenced a comic a minute ago. So, and I, I think I failed to mention earlier that um, on your website, the uh, giantif dot com, um, mm-hmm. the current the current comic, the top of the top of your blog is the one that you drew for uh, for this occasion, and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Everybody can go and and have a look at it. It's uh, it's not a funny comic like some comics are. It's a, it's a serious comic. Yeah, and in fact, like I wanted to make sure I got the details right and I wanted to hear the perspective of my parents because they were actually in church that day and I wasn't. Uh I was in Wichita, but I was at home. Mm. Uh, or at their home actually. I, I was visiting them. Um, and so I, I said, look, I'd like to sit down and interview you about this. I know it's going to sound bizarre, that, but I want to do a comic based on this. Hmm. My mom's like, I don't think it's going to be very funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's true. But a lot of my comics aren't what you would say. They're not ha-ha funny. <laughs> yeah, it's graphic commentary, I guess, or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a tricky thing because like um, – when, when you say like a political or editorial cartoon, what people imagine is what you see on the back page of your newspaper with a lot of uh, cross hatching and, and some kind of character, character of Trump right. these days. Uh, and my comics are very political, but they're not about they're usually not about federal politics like you usually think of. They're usually more about um uh, you know, feminist issues or gay issues or general social, social justice issues, sometimes issues that are specific to uh, the skeptical movement. Mm. But I don't I try not to restrict myself only to that. I, I basically draw a cartoon about whatever fires me up at the time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> much. So you you sat down and interviewed them. I mean, how did that go? Mm-hmm. Um. My parents are, my dad's going to turn 80 this year and my mom's 75. Mm. Um, so they are remarkably matter of fact about these discussions. Mm. Um, because when you get to be that age, your, your friends are, I mean, they're, they're dying of, right. of not of, not of murder, but it, it, death is, is something that you don't, you don't have attach so much gravity or, or, uh, I don't, I don't know how to say it, but mm. they, they can just talk about these issues very matter-of-factly. So they, they responded to me as if they were being interviewed right. <laughs> by a journalist or something. Um, and so I tried to uh, combine their recollections with mine in the comic. Um, I assigned a color to my mom and a color to my dad so you could distinguish who's saying what right. and s- tried to sort of blend my recollections together with theirs. And they, I'm really glad I talked to them because there were a few details I remembered wrong. Like I thought that my dad was an usher that day along with Tiller, and it turns out he wasn't. Um, he, he is an usher, but he wasn't serving that day. Um, but he did remember that some of the ushers that were working that day uh, actually tried to chase 
uh, Scott Roeder, the, the killer, out of the church, and he threatened them. So, I mean, wow. there's probably not anything they could have done. They, they probably wouldn't have been able to apprehend him on their own. So, but, but I do admire their bravery in, in trying. Yeah, and you, in your in your description in the comic, you say your your mom was actually with his wife at the time in the front of the church. Mm-hmm. Wow. They they were in the choir together, um, and they still are. Like uh, Jeannie Tiller still attends. Um, they have four grown children now. Who uh, I, I did ask about that. Um, they weren't in church that day, but they do sometimes ch- uh, attend church. They're still in the area. Mm. Wow. And have you spoken to uh, Jeannie about this at all in the, in the recent years or ever? I have not. I had not ever spoken to the Tillers myself. Mm -hmm. Um, They, they were on, they weren't like great friends with my parents, but they knew each other through church. Um, And I, I didn't really know them at all. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, so what is, I mean, how do you make sense of the last 10 years of, of, I guess, activism in, in this regard? I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a bad judge of this, which is why I'm glad I'm asking you because I'm, as a man, um, I think I've had the luxury of not being as uh, concerned about abortion. And I, I remember when it was really the hot button issue, I was a Christian. I was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. And the Seventh-day Adventist church is a weird thing. Like they're very fundamentalist in their beliefs and in their approach to belief in general, but they've never been militant anti-abortion activists. And that comes in large part from the Adventist conviction about separation of church and state. And so internally to the church, there were, you know, policy positions and doctrinal positions about being against abortion and that pastors should discourage their parishioners from having abortions. But the Adventists have never gotten engaged in the right-wing Christian movement to outlaw abortion. Um, mercifully. I mean, they've gotten involved in anti-gay stuff, but they've, for whatever reason, chose to stay out of the the abortion debate. And so it wasn't a big part of my indoctrination, and it wasn't a part of my religious life. And I grew up and sort of came to maturity in my theological development as thinking of it as an individual choice. And was so I guess I've always been more or less, I guess I've I've, been, I've never been anti-abortion, and I, I guess I've been of that progressive Christian mindset in the past, where I thought, well, abortion is regrettable, and we should make it rare, um, legal but rare, and sort of took that tack on it, you know, and um, and then I guess I thought uh, naively that this, you know, piece of of um, political debate was behind us that you know the hot button issues in the 90s and the early 2000s was gay marriage and abortion those were the two things you could get all republicans out to the polls for um and then it sort of we almost looked back on that it seemed to me at least a few years ago we would look back on those days with some kind of quaint reflection of oh you remember how it used to be one issue voters on the right you know who were uh, anti-abortion voters, and we've sort of moved beyond that now. But with so many, like so many things, like um, you know, white supremacy, it seems back with a vengeance. And then, you know, little by little, I'm learning maybe it was never really gone. Uh, how how do you size up these 
past 10 years in your own experience? Wow, there are all sorts of different angles to that. Um, so uh, our church, uh, evangelical is in the name. It's uh, ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. However, um, I've always thought of that branch of Lutherans as being the liberal kind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when I was a, a kid, my my mom said, okay, now make sure that you, if somebody asks what kind of Lutheran you are, you say ELCA and not Missouri Synod because Missouri Synod are the conservative people. Very, yes. Um, and so I, I don't ever remember having a belief against abortion. Um, I, I certainly don't remember ever being taught those sort of beliefs in church. Um, so I kind of went from being wholly ignorant on the matter to being pretty stridently pro-choice myself mm-hmm. uh, because I was, I was allowed to, to think about it for myself. I wasn't pre-indoctrinated one direction or another. Um, but, uh, so this is another thing I talked to my parents about. I said, so do you think that, um, uh, anti-abortion activity has kind of gone underground and we agreed that it really hadn't. It's just that there are so many other issues going on at the same time that it's kind of been subsumed under those. And it's, it's particularly interesting to compare um, abortion to gay marriage because there's, there's still definitely some anti-gay marriage sentiment, but people aren't really talking about Obergefell, the Supreme Court, case uh, establishing gay marriage, they're not really talking about that being overturned. Like they're talking every day about Rove being overturned. Right. Um, And I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about the concept of stochastic terrorism in relation to this. Are you familiar with that term? Oh, just only to recognize those words in sequence, but I don't know. I don't (laughs) think I know what it means. Um, stochastic, as I understand it, means random, but Mm. it doesn't mean that the attacks themselves are random. It's, it's referring to how, um, some, like I referenced, uh, Bill O'Reilly in my comic and I, and I gave some quotes from him and how he, how he, uh, called him Tiller the baby killer for years and, and, uh, and talked about his uh, Tiller on his show incessantly, all but p- putting up his picture and saying, go get this guy. Mm. So stochastic terrorism is basically uh, when you are shouting out to the masses, to your fans, when you have a big voice, lots of people listening to you and, uh, and it, making an accusation. It always seems to be an accu- accusation-based thing to me. Um, saying, here's a person, they're doing something that would uh, offend any decent human out out there, but nothing's happening to them for reasons that you don't bother to explain. So some random listener who hears you, that's where the random part comes in, Mm. um, goes out and kills somebody, and you can throw up your hands and say, hey, I didn't actually say I wanted you to attack them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the basic idea. And like, it, it's really difficult to talk about because the first assumption people make when you mention that is that you think that should be a crime, um, that, that it rises to the level of incitement. And 
I don't think either of those is true, but mm-hmm. I do think there should be consequences. Like I, th- I think when you when you make accusations like that, um, you should lose your job. You should lose sponsors. <laughs> there should there should be um, consequences that don't necessarily rise to the level of criminality. Right. But, but there's because there, there basically are none at this point. Like uh, it's been in the news lately that Trump has been going around to his rallies and announcing that uh, doctors routinely hand newborn babies to women and give them the option to execute them. Right. <laughs> and I went on yeah. a, a Twitter terror about this the other day, pointing out that, hey, you know, fa- infanticide is already illegal. Yeah. And you're you're hearing this from the head of the executive branch of the United States. So if there was actually a big uh, rampant wave of infanticide going on, he could do something about it, but he's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. what does that tell you? <laughs> Instead, he's yelling to you about it at his rallies just to stir you up because that's that's been a primary motivator for, for right-wingers since forever. Yeah, and it's this is sort of like Ben Shapiro getting named by a couple of terrorists now and, you know, them kind of pointing to him as not direct inspiration for the act of terrorism, but certainly a sort of a signpost along their journey towards their radicalization uh, and their violence. And, and of course, you know, as you, I agree with you, like we can't be, make this a crime where we say, you know, anybody that this assassin named in the last six months is somehow now like, complicit in this murder or something like that but but it's definitely something like you say that socially we can hold people responsible for these things if we find the mechanisms to do so and and that doesn't that's not really happening now and i mean the the people when they discover that they have been named in these crimes no accountability no sense of self-awareness whatsoever they just they just shrug it off. And I don't know how I would react if somebody uh, named me <laughs> uh. while, while committing a mass murder or something. But I hope it would be better than that. <laughs> I hope I would at least like drop off the Internet and and go into hiding for a little while and just rethink all my choices in life and, and what I've been saying and see if there's any uh, if, if there's a strong basis for for uh, making that connection to me, but no, none of that. <laughs> At right. least not that I've seen. When the Southern Poverty Law Center wrote an article, I don't, I want to say somewhere like six months ago, that talked about the journey of people towards their right wing um, uh, radicalization, and these were sort of um, radicalization narratives, essentially, and this was not something that the author just sort of made up. They basically, they, they essentially, they interviewed people on the, on the right, uh, on the far right that's involved in white nationalism, um, some violent, uh, some with a history of violence, some not, and just said, like, what's your story? Like, how did you get there? And it reminded me of my podcast in some ways where I talk to people and I'll say to them, oh, you're an atheist now, but you were formerly a uh, Jehovah's Witness. What's your story? How did you get from being a Jehovah's Witness to being an atheist? And they'll tell me, well, this happened and this happened. And then I read this book and then I picked up, you know, um, 
Christopher Hitchens, God is not great. And then I saw this YouTube debate with such and such a debater. And, and after all of that, I decided I'm an atheist now, right? And so, and I'm thinking, oh, that's how we, there are people that are influence us, right, along our path. And we, we attribute our current place, rightly so, to these, and we don't, none of us get to where we are alone. So, you know, these are the influences. And so they asked these, these folks, um, how did you get to be this neo-Nazi or this alt-right um, online troll kind of person? And they sort of had these um, uh, hits on certain phrases and words that kept coming up. And one of them was Sam Harris. And, you know, of course, he got super upset about the fact that he was named in, in these um, radicalization narratives. But, you know, it's 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 their story. It's their story of how they became radicalized. And I, I remember having this exact um, sort of, I, I posed this, uh, I think on Facebook or Twitter, just the way you said a second ago, like if this, if this was me, if I were named in one of these treatises or in one of these stories, what would I do? And I said something almost exactly like what you said, like I would totally rethink everything I was doing. Not that one person who names me in some ridiculous idea that they have means that I'm that person, but it certainly would give me pause, I would think. And I'm just, you know, flabbergasted that more people are not, um, I guess, for themselves, not interested in being self-reflective like that. And then for someone like Bill O'Reilly, who had incited, clearly it seems to me, had been, had a role in inciting the violence that was eventually carried out against Dr. Tiller, that that the network or the listeners or the viewers would not in some way show their uh, disgust around such a thing. And I mean, this is what these people, um, by these people, I, I guess I'm talking about any public voices like Bill Maher, like uh, Ben Shapiro, like um, Sam Harris. They put themselves up and speak to untold number of people, these vast audiences. And they expect, I mean, this, they're doing it for the influence. Mm. They want to affect people's lives in profound ways. They just don't want to accept that some of the scary things they're saying are affecting people, people's lives in scary ways. (laughs) They want to disavow responsibility for that. No, you can't have it both ways. Yeah, you're, it's like speech you has the audience you attract for a reason. That's right. And then and speech may be free, but it's not free of consequences. I mean, people do things with the things that they hear. Um Yeah. I and mean, it, it really kind of puts the lie t- to the whole idea of a marketplace of ideas as well, you know, if if the, the marketplace is certainly about as useful as the capitalist marketplace in in sorting out the good from the bad, it's um, you know, if there were a, a, an ethical marketplace of ideas, these folks would be out of work. But right. to the it's contrary, it's not like the good ideas rise to the top in the marketplace of ideas. Right. Any, no. Any more than the good people rise to the top in the capitalist marketplace. Yeah, but yet this this trope gets keeps getting trotted out that you know if we what we need in the case of these um sort of radical voices that are harmful is is more de- debate, more discussion. You know, if we just talk about it more, the truth will come out or the right ideas or the 
I guess, enlightened ideas will rise to the top. Um, but there's so many historical evidences that this isn't true. Yeah, I mean, in the from the stochastic terrorism angle, that's why I try to focus, whenever I talk about that, I try to focus my discussion on the accusations they make, um, the, the claims of, of fact that they are leveling at whoever... Who that whoever their target is, because in that case you could conceivably at least um, uh, come at it from the angle that this is actually slander or actually libel or actually defamation. Hmm. Um, and so I've, I've kind of been watching the Alex Jones uh, Sandy Hook uh, defamation case. It's been going on for so long, so it's so it's kind of hard to keep up on all the details. But um, you know they have a record of things that he actually said. Um, that are pretty black and white about how Sandy Hook was a false flag operation. And those are actionable statements, it seems to me. Like the, like the definition of murder is largely subjective. Most of us don't really think of murder as being strictly uh, illegal killing. We usually, we, we think that there are some kinds of murder that are legal, like, right. um, like I would say that allowing a child to dehydrate in, in border control custody approaches murder or at the very least some kind of negligence or manslaughter. Right. Um, but that's legal, <laughs> um, unfortunately, for right now. Um, so I, that's why I don't think you can really come at pro-lifers and say you are accusing uh, abortionists of being murderers. I mean, you can certainly come at them about that, but that I don't think you can. That's an actionable statement in, say, in terms of saying you have slandered or libeled them. Hmm. Um, so that's why I think it, it's better to pin down the specific um, accusations that they make, um, and and they make plenty of them. <laughs> I mean, there's there's few people who understand abortion less than pro-lifers, wow, and so yeah. that's where you get the statements about dismemberment abortions, which aren't a thing. <laughs> Yeah, um, or these all these late term, third term abortions that apparently are happening. Yes, um, which are only legal in a few places, and they are only in cases where there's an extreme medical necessity. I mean, that's that's the only reason that George Till he was he performed late term abortions, and that was it. Um, I would encourage anybody who has the ability to watch the document uh, documentary after Tiller. Um, it's a bit dated at this point because it came out in 2013, but it was about the few remaining uh, doctors left in the United States that that could perform uh, late-term abortions and the hell they had gone through in order to maintain their practice and the security measures that they have in place. And they're they're all getting up there, you know, reaching ages that they should have retired several years ago, but they know that they're the few left and they're not, not really being replaced. Um, How do you feel about like, I mean, well, first of all, they're not just doing sort of like uh, elective third term abortions. Can we just, is that right. a fair no statement? Such thing. There's no such thing. Right. Okay. I just want to get that on the record. I, uh, I'm not friends necessarily with Julie Burkhart. She, she's the one who restarted George Tiller's uh, clinic and, and, um, First, it was called Southwind Women's Center. Um, a couple years ago, the name changed to Trust Women. Um, and she's, you know, she does talks every now and then. And I uh, asked her once if there were uh, other doctors that had 
come up who were who were performing these late term abortions. And she said a couple that she could name, but not not on a replacement level. Hmm. How do you relate to this this statement or this claim that that there is a kind of eugenics going on with abortion? Say, for example, if you find out that the this um, fetus um, in utero is severely Down syndrome or or has other life-threatening diseases or congenital defects or things that would prevent the child from living very long outside the womb or at all. Um, some people are wanting to slap a kind of eugenics type of thing onto that. Have you, have you encountered that? And how do you respond to that? Um, that was uh, a law that uh, Mike Pence signed off on when he was still in Indiana. Um, and it recently came before the Supreme court. Um, I, yeah. I didn't read their decision on it. Um, I, sorry. That's okay. Uh, no, but, neither, neither of us are legal scholars <laughs> for the record. Okay. So the way I think of it, there are levels to the pro-choice argument. Um, and in my, I feel like I can argue strongly that there is no reason to consider an, an, a fetus uh, a zygote, a blastocyst at any stage, a person, a mm -hmm. as a philosophical category, not just human, that's the species, but a person is a, it's a category of a, of a being with rights. And I would argue that you shouldn't be considered a person unless you have a fully developed brain in addition to your heart and your other parts. Um, and you have uh, thoughts and intentions and goals and feelings and, and all these things that, that no, no fetus has. So I don't think they, they can qualify as a person on that basis. Mm. Um, and, and sometimes I can stop there because I can get somebody to agree with me. Mm -hmm. And then I point out after establishing that, that, okay, so if it's not a person, we agree on that, then it doesn't matter why the pregnant person wants to get the abortion because they're not committing murder. They're not ending the life of a person. So it doesn't matter if that, uh, that fetus has a, uh, a severe disability and that's why they're aborting. It doesn't matter what color it is, what sex it is, um, any of that, because we've already established that it's not a person being killed here. Um, would it be more and, on the level of an animal or like, like, because I, I've even had this viability thing in my, like thinking about like a, if the child, child, sorry, if, if the fetus is then viable outside the mother on its own. Um, but then how do we consider viability? Cause even a perfectly healthy newborn isn't completely like viable <laughs> on their own. They still need to be fed. They need to have their, um, you know, bodily functions monitored and taken care of yeah. and all the rest. You have, a, you have a extremely premature baby who has been born, I guess, I mean, technically they might be viable, but that's only because they're being kept alive by any number of machines in the, in the NICU for who knows how long and, and who's paying for that. Right. I mean, the, the pro-lifers are never paying for uh, these, these, uh, what they say are, are babies, mm -hmm. um, and all the medical problems that they come with. Like, um, 
Hmm. This is kind of a dicey area, but like, I, I, I'm kind of conflicted about the disability area because of this, uh, on the one hand, um, I do think it's ableist to insist that you can only have a so-called perfect baby and that you, you don't want to have any sort of difficulties uh, that you wouldn't have ordinarily, right. uh, that you don't want to handle that. But on the other hand, we live in a country where if you're not wealthy, you're going to have an extremely difficult time taking care of that. If you that fetus, if you if you carry out the pregnancy and they become a child, right? Um, and nobody is obliged to help you with that. Uh, our health system is terrible. Right. Um, the mother so, can barely get medical care much of the time. Yeah. So I, I. So ultimately, I just come down to you cannot judge the reasons for abortion, no matter what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't. You can't base it on on the reasons. I mean. It gets especially ridiculous when it's black women aborting what presumably are going to be black babies if they were born, mm. calling that racist or eugenics. Yeah. Because that implies that they are somehow racist against their own fetus or maybe the I don't know, their their parents are white and or their 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 parents in law are white and they're trying to pressure them. I mean, I think we can all agree that nobody should be forced to to have an abortion right. and it's not like if you walk into a clinic, they, they will strap you to a chair and say, you're getting an abortion no matter what. <laughs> you know, they, they take their counseling responsibility seriously. They sit you down and say, is anyone forcing you into this? Right. Um, in, a, in a setting when you're, you're separated with whoever uh, might be the, the pressuring party. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Clarence Thomas in, in his dissent from the recent decision invoked the whole uh, Mar- uh, Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist thing. Right. And um, first of all, Margaret Sanger was anti-abortion, uh, which, which Thomas uh, accepts in his dissent. Like he specifically says that. Um, and she was uh, into eugenics, but eugenics are more of a top down governmental program to regulate uh, populations according to what they deem desirable characteristics. Mm. No, no decision that an individual person makes for him or herself is eugenics. Uh, That's just a a life choice that they made. So if you're saying that black women getting abortions that they chose is eugenics, you're basically saying they didn't choose it at all. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful um, clarification around, you know, eugenics being a sort of a power sort of imposed on uh, a population or an individual, not person's individual choices. It's always struck me as a kind of scare tactic, right? To say, oh, if you can have an abortion, you're actually engaging in eugenics because you're selecting, you're artificially selecting, uh, which... Um, fetuses come to term and and so forth. And yeah, I mean, I don't have any children. I don't want to have any children. (laughs) I have never, to my knowledge, been pregnant and don't want to be ever. Uh, So that would just as much be eugenics as, as the case of a black woman getting an abortion because I'm, I'm selecting according to my own preferences not to have children at all. You know, this is a a slightly apropos of nothing, but I, you're, for whatever reason, 
this just popped into my head. The, one of the other Gretchens in the Life After God community. <laughs> there are three, apparently. Uh, oh, that's got to be confusing. Yeah. <laughs> she said uh, she used to be uh, formerly evangelical. And she said, you know, what she could never understand is why evangelicals didn't sort of like love abortion because this was if, if the if the uh, zygote is a, a person, if God regards that that as a person, then they have an immediate free pass to heaven. Um, there, so there's going to be all of these people that don't have to endure the trials and suffering of life in this world. You know, go immediately to the front of the line and and enjoy paradise. And and I thought, wow, I never thought of that. Like, what what's their theological explanation for why these these um, zygotes need to become people first. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't understand. I, I did a comic about that too. Actually. Oh, you did. Okay, great. Uh, I'm scrolling back to it really quick. Uh, way back in the, in the eighties, when I was a kid, I read uh, mad magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. Oh, yes. Um, and there was a section called snappy answers to stupid questions, <laughs> uh, which apparently had been going since like the, late sixties and the, the cartoonist who drew it, uh, Al Jaffe is now like 97 or something. He's still around. Wow. Uh, so I decided to do my own version uh, of that with the question, what if your mother had aborted you? Oh yeah. What if your mother had aborted you? Yes. I, I think I saw your cartoon. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, cause that like, that was my, one of my answers. I would have advanced in the little baby queue up in heaven to the next mommy opportunity. Huh? Right. And that is that is like the first thought I remember. <laughs> one of the earliest thoughts I remember having when I was thinking about abortion and and trying to figure out my views on it, uh, because I was I was still very much a Christian at the time and I believed in souls in heaven, and I just thought, okay, well, I mean, the same thing that would happen if you had a miscarriage. The the baby's either going to stay in heaven, which great for the baby. Or they're going to go to the next mommy, right? They, you know, whenever that a, happens, yeah, yeah, kind of like uh, almost like a comedy, like The Good Place, where this baby <laughs> comes back on the conveyor belt back into heaven, and like, damn it, I thought we sent you out to be like, you know, part of this family. Well, we'll put him back in the queue for the next. Needy. Yeah, I, I almost expected to see that at some point on that show. <laughs> I know it could still come along. I don't know. It could. It could. Yeah, like what? Like all these. They would do. Yeah, or some joke about male masturbation, you know, or something about all these seeds that are like just wasted out there. The Bible doesn't speak very kindly about a man spilling his seed on the ground either. No. You never hear any condemnation about that. There are a lot of abortions in the Bible, too. Yes, that's true. Abortions and fantasides. Like it, it, it's not a very pro-life book, that Bible. Yeah, certainly not. Um, certainly not when it comes to already born people, which evangelicals seem <laughs> to care very little about. Oh, but I want to go back real quick to the, the personhood thing. Yeah. Because, so like I was talking about levels and how like I prefer to start out by, by arguing that the fetus should not be considered a person at all. Um, but I've received some pushback about that recently because people keep saying, uh, well, 
you don't need to argue about that. It's not even an important issue because even if the fetus is a person, they, they bring out the violinist argument that if you wake up uh, attached by the kidneys to a viol- violinist who needs your organs to survive. Right. I don't know why it's a violinist. I, I don't know. It was just that uh, famous paper. The philosopher was Thomas. I don't, I didn't read her book, so I'm not sure why she said a famous violinist. So I guess it's to, to really make you care That's about right. this person. <laughs> she must've liked <laughs> not violin. only are they a fully grown person, but they're an accomplished violinist. <laughs> um, so they, they point out that even this violinist, you are not obligated to keep them alive by, by letting them use your bodily organs. So you don't need to quibble about whether the, the fetus is a person or not, because we don't have an obligation to keep even another person alive. We can't be forced to donate our organs to anybody or, or to give blood. That's always right. with something within our control. But the problem to me is that I feel like giving too much room to the pro-life people who want to basically say that once you, uh, once the moment of conception happens, that you basically have a fully formed baby in your uterus. Right. And that's, that's the image they want to give. And, and so I kind of feel like it plays into that to just focus exclusively on the, on the person thing and just give, give the ground of, of saying that the fetus is a person. My, so. my, I guess my sort of uh, reticence to go down the personhood route is just that it's complicated to know where the line is and whether or not, for instance, a uh, severely developmentally disabled person is a person, um, whether they have autonomy or whether they can be locked in an insane, in- insane asylum, as we used to call them, or, or whether, you know, a severely aged person can be euthanized or, or something like that. And I know these are sort of slippery slope arguments that are usually very far from actual reality or any sort of any fear of this actually being carried out. But I I just wonder, can those personhood arguments come back to bite us if, you know, when we start encountering people who there is some question in whether they're a full person anymore or not, say after a bad head trauma or something? I mean, at at the end of life, it's it's still not exactly clear cut, but we do have this idea that um, there's a, there's a difference between a vegetative state and brain death. Uh, I think a Mm -hmm. vegetative state is when you're on life support, but you could conceivably come back. Whereas brain death, you're just gone. Right. And that's, that's when you can unplug or you, you could opt to keep the, the body physically alive for some, some unspecified time for whatever reason. And yeah, the heart would be beating, but that person would not be in any meaningful sense actually alive. Right. Um, which I try to bring up when everybody, whenever somebody's talking about a heartbeat bill, like (laughs) the, the heart starts forming long before the brain starts, starts forming. Right. And the brain is where it all happens to me. I mean, a lot of my morality is based around suffering, um, not just physical suffering, but emotional suffering. Like the knowledge uh, that your death is is looming over you right. is a kind of suffering. And the, the knowledge that people you care about are going to exit your life one day causes suffering. And that's, to me, that's an integral part of being, of what personhood means is that you have this 
emotional level of existential suffering in addition to just, you know, flinching if somebody punches you. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have the same kinds of dilemmas in medical ethics on the other end of life as we do on the beginning, you know, for the same reasons. You know, and I think it's um, there. I think there are probably some sincere evangelicals and Catholics who genuinely, genuinely feel as though they are somehow taking a life whether it's to unplug the person who is in a vegetative state or brain dead, or whether it's to allow for an abortion. There's probably some really earnest Christians who believe that that's morally wrong, but it seems to me the the lion's share of this is about political control and about stacking the Supreme Court for other things that they also care about. And I know it's hard to get into people's motives, but we can also see their subsequent actions and how, how much they care about, uh, you know, other issues that are related to life and and how inconsistent people are in really caring about life broadly conceived. Yeah, you can you can go at least two different directions with that. You can talk about the suffering of children who already exist, whether it's migrant children or children in the foster care system or um, serving children in in, uh, different parts of the globe. And you can also bring up like other contexts like uh, uh, in vitro fertilization. I mean, sure. All these embryos that are just being tossed out. <laughs> sometimes they're frozen, and sometimes after being frozen, they're tossed out. Probably most of the time after that. Right. But I mean, those are all fertilized embryos, which is weird to me. Care about those. Yeah, which is weird to me because there was the whole you know evangelical backlash during the Bush administration about stem cell research. So why everybody up in arms over stem cells, but not too concerned about in vitro fertilization? I am afraid I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah, it's it's just so ridiculous to me. Like, yeah, I yeah I I I can't. I I know this is a like a a feeling thing, not a fact thing, but and it would take me some time or effort to amass the facts necessary. If someone has done this, I don't have to redo it. But my feeling is that these men and occasionally a woman in positions of power, elected officials of one kind or another or appointed officials are just not that concerned about these religious and moral arguments and are just, it's just a a wedge issue. Um, But we've been saying that for 20, 30, 40, going past 40 years now. And, uh, it still keeps coming back to this particular issue that galvanizes uh, the right wing support. And I just don't know, and I don't expect you have an answer either, but perhaps you do. Uh, what will it take to get past this issue? And are we really facing uh, a reversal of where we've been? I mean, normally, whenever there is like a a scientific innovation that affects uh, the central questions to religion, the beginning of life, the end of life, reproduction, um, in some cases violence, but not as much. Um, It seems like 
you you have this immediate backlash of being accused of playing God, whatever it is you're trying to do, whether right. it's clone a sheep, uh, use stem cells for something, um, you know, it's, that's the immediate go-to. And, but over time, the innovation becomes more and more commonplace and more and more ordinary. And, and the fundamentalists, draw draw their attention to something else Mm. um but that hasn't been the case with abortion i fully expected that it would be Mm. like i i did not expect in in the early 90s that we'd be having this conversation in 2019 um because i mean roe was 72 something like that um so this has been going on longer than i've been alive yeah (laughs) and and, and you you see people showing up at like the women's march, holding signs that say, "I still can't I can't believe I still have to protest this crap." Um, but it but it is cyclical. Um, I don't think that it has actually uh, gone underground entirely because it was only a few years ago that we had um, uh, Robert Louis Deere shot up a Planned Parenthood yep. in uh, Colorado, I believe. And he and he specifically said it was because of the the accusation that they had been soliciting abortions so that they could chop up babies and sell them for parts, <laughs> like that. That in like in in my opinion, that would count as stochastic terrorism because it's a specific factual claim that was made and disproven. Right. And violence happened because of it. He killed three or four people because of that. Yeah, and that whole video scandal was shown to be a total fraud yep yeah i don't know i mean i think it's you know there's a this culture war i i mean i think like you say i mean it's been going on as long as i've been alive or longer and uh well longer for sure and it it you know it's gonna keep finding its way back and um i don't don't know i mean i i I feel like some have said that these laws that we're seeing right now are intended to force the issue with the Supreme Court. Some are saying that the Supreme Court's not necessarily a slam dunk, even if these do reach the Supreme Court. And others are saying that, you know, I guess Elizabeth Warren came right away with a plan to uh, try to pass. Of course, she would need the House and the Senate and so forth, but uh, to try to pass a law that would allow give allowance for abortions at the federal level in the similar way that the law was passed allowing for um, universal marriage. So, you know, there are probably ways that we can, you know, continue to work around this. But um, to me, the most disheartening thing is the, the way that it clearly shows to me that, that women are still this reviled, uh, and I, you know, I don't think it's too strong to say hated in some, among a certain class of men. Maybe it's even a majority of men, uh, just despised by men, and so much so that they can't even uh, get their own medical care without the permission of someone else. You know, like, like I remember even talking to a close female friend of mine who was going to her doctor for some, you know advice and possible treatment and and she had to get her then husband to sign something you know and and or or to give his permission for something and 
And it's like, it would never happen. To, I mean, I, I have a vasectomy. It was never, uh, uh, it was never asked of me whether my wife consented. I was married at the time. Uh, you know, it was, do I really, am I really sure? Because this is probably not reversible. And am I really sure? But I was never asked, you know, whether my wife approved or not. I was going to be born in a Catholic hospital. That was uh, the hospital where my mom, uh, where her doctor at the time was affiliated. Um, And I was the third child and I was a breech baby, uh, complicated. And so she had to get a cesarean section and she knew this would happen. So she's like, you know, this is it. <laughs> I, d- I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, this is going to be the one. And then I want to get my tubes tied. Mm. And it's a lot simpler. I, I understand this is pretty commonplace. Uh, if you're getting a C-section to go ahead and get a tubal ligation at the same time. Right. Because you're already... In there. opened up. Um, yeah. so, uh, but she was informed that they would not do this at the Catholic hospital. Uh, thankfully oh, she right. found this out before she, before she went there or else the, the choice would have been taken out of her hands. But she said, well, guess what? I'm not going to that hospital. Wow. I'm going to a different one where they will perform this procedure. And the doctor's like, Oh, well, I didn't, I didn't imagine that. I, I guess we can, we can make that arrangement. <laughs> Like it didn't even occur to him wow. that that would be something she would stand firm on. Um, <sighs> this was 1977. Yeah. But my, my understanding is that a lot of doctors still think that way. Like I personally, I don't think, uh, Kath, I don't think hospitals should be religiously affiliated. I don't think that they should be able to choose not to perform medical procedures like that on religious grounds. Um, yeah. but it's part of the screwed up healthcare system that we have, that mm. that's the case. Um, yeah. it's, it's part of our screwed up. I, I was talking to somebody today about, it's also part of our screwed up healthcare system that, um, abortions are happening in these clinics that like standalone clinics where people can congregate outside and harass everybody that goes in instead of in say a hospital, right? <laughs> like, it like often happens in the UK because they have the national health service. So nobody even knows why you're going into the hospital. You get the abortion, you come out, there's no protesters. <sighs> um, yeah, that's, that's like, uh, it's staggering. It really, <laughs> it really is. And I know it's a little overdone these days. Uh, the comparison to a handmaid's tale. Um, it really is apropos. I mean, it's, you know, you, it's obviously an extreme, the story is an extreme version. It's where things could go perhaps if, um, you know, if we allow them to, but it's, you know, it's not so, you know, when I see the UK, uh, in various ways, protesting Trump's arrival, you know, there this week, it's not, it it does remind me of, you know, elected officials trying to show up in Canada for some meetings on that, uh, in that story and being sent away, basically like, no, nobody from Gilead is, is welcome here in Canada. Like, so I don't know. I mean, I, I really hope we don't get to that point. And part of me, you know, I was talking to my girlfriend about this and we were, you know, it's, you know, we're both past the time in our lives where we're thinking about having children and, um, so it's not personally related to her or me in a, like a very immediate way, but it definitely affects us thinking about where would we move one day? Would we move to Missouri? Would we move to, to Georgia? 
Like, what would that mean? We'd have to really think about the sort of the political ramifications of wanting to live in a certain place. And, and let's say Roe gets overturned in some, you know, horrible future scenario. What, what then is it that doctors go back to being arrested for performing abortions or what kind of civil disobedience comes next? You know, like what, where does, where does this play out to and what kind of uh, protest, you know, Americans are seem to me very pliant um and um and and very sort of docile in the face of their rights being taken away a lot of the time and but I, you know i have to think that americans can be pushed to the limit too and i just i just wonder what shape that protest might take it, it, it's worrisome the lawyer who argued uh roe v wade before the supreme court her name was uh not sure her first name. I think it's Sarah Weddington mm. um, was part of basically an underground abortion network in Texas. Mm. Um, they would, they would transport people who needed abortions to Mexico or, or to low cloth, low cost clinics or underground clinics, at least uh, that they had already vetted beforehand and established as safe um, and uh, pretty successfully, but I mean, it's not like that's a state that we want to return to <laughs> right. because that's, uh, there's way too much demand for abortion in order for everybody to go that route. <laughs> right. Um, and, and people don't have time. They, they will already be attempting to self abort and, and killing themselves in the process. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, 50% of the population can have sex with no risk of getting pregnant. Um, the other half, uh, you know, are about to have their rights taken away. So it's it's a dismal place to find ourselves. And I hope that um, we don't come to that place. So I, uh, there, I don't know if we have time to go into the the comic I did about this subject, but I've, I've been struggling with uh, finding a good term to use to refer to the fact that there are uh, trans men who also have uteri and also might find themselves in a situation where they would need an abortion. Hmm. And they're, they're a distinct minority, certainly, but there are also a lot of women who don't have uteri for some reason or another, or it doesn't, um, or they're, they're, um, uh, older and they don't need to worry about getting pregnant. Um, so, uh, in, in one of my cartoons, I used uterus havers, which sounds very clunky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, but it's something, uh, and like the, the, the better a term you try to come up with, the more words get thrown into it. So I, I, I tend to, I'll use, uh, people who might find themselves in need of an abortion, which takes a long time to say. Um, yeah, right. But people who might need an abortion. People who might become pregnant. Right. You know, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's completely um, completely legitimate and just another overlapping oppression that, of course, this subject lifts up. And, um, you know, the trans uh, antagonism that we see is is really parallel to, to all of this. I, I mean, it's not a distinction that 
is going to really occur to most of your pro-lifers. They're going to see trans men as women anyway. Right. Uh, and and want they're going to say, I don't really care about the uterus. I care about the woman. So yeah, it's, but yeah. you don't, you don't want to play into their conceptions. You want to bolster your own uh, people, especially the most, the most vulnerable of them. So, um, but yeah, like in my, I'd moved around in the United States. I was, I was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas. And then I moved uh, to, I was only in Illinois for two years and then after that, moved to Texas. And uh, after that, moved out of the country and then back to Texas. So I've been in red states pretty much my entire life in the U.S. So I don't really know what it's like to spend time as an adult in a blue state <laughs> right. for any sustained period. It sounds nice. <laughs> we find other things to be angry about. <laughs> I mean, just the idea of being able to write to your uh, representatives to say, hey, you did something good. That's got to be a strange feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of cool. never get to do that. And it's funny because I have sometimes the opposite feeling of like, am I wasting my vote by staying here in California? Should I be somewhere else fighting for rights that, you know, are are uncommon in other places? At the very, I mean, you don't, that's kind of an extreme measure, but at least don't write us off. Like, it does bother me to see, uh, I, I don't really mind being referred to as a flyover state, but when people say that, hey, Texas can just secede from the union, or we should just burn Georgia to the ground, or uh, does anybody even live in Kansas? <laughs> like, yes, uh, trans people live here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that this is a, you know, all kinds of vulnerable people live here and we're, we're fighting for our lives every day. I mean, come on. Yeah, I, this is a problem. I mean, there's, I mean, you know, I think it's pretty well known that, that black voters saved uh, Alabama from Roy Moore, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's like, it's, it's just so disrespectful to, to the people in those states who are, I mean, Sometimes there's a landslide victory, but there's always at least 40 to 45 percent of the voters who vote the other way. It's not like it's 90 percent or something. So that means there's a sizable percentage of the population in places like South Carolina, North Carolina and Virginia and Alabama and Tennessee that are progressive and uh, or if not progressive, at least liberal, at least wanting the freedom to, uh, you know, go to the doctor when they're sick or something like that. And I just, this is a really, I think, um, really destructive feature of some like online liberalism, uh, to, to think of, and I I don't want to, you know, name names, but, but I think to consider whole populations of people as, um, sort of not important to the political discourse is, is really problematic. Like, I don't, I'm not saying that we have to try to persuade hardened Trump voters to change. But I I do think that there are some people that when appealed to on the basis of their self-interest, like, you know, would you like to be able to go to the doctor or take your kids to the doctor when you're sick without worrying about having to mortgage your house? Yeah. Like, okay, well, there's an answer for that. Like, there's a way that we can accomplish that, you know, or how about, you know, if, you know, we didn't have to drink lead poisoned water. Would that be cool? Like, yeah, we'd like that. Okay. Like, you know, we could elect someone who takes care of that 
That's that's there is a way to have that. I just I, I just don't see why we have to just write people off and um, but politicians and, and have to care about a those lot populations. of the people who have migrated out to uh, uh, more liberal states for their own safety or just because they they found it a better place to live um, started out being that it's sort of like the, the, the stereotypical atheist who says that uh, all religious people are just stupid. And you say, well, wait, weren't you a Christian in 1994? Right. Were you stupid Um, then? Were you like, did, did some kind of reverse hit on the head thing happen to you where you just, you, you jumped up 50 IQ points and became a genius when you converted to atheism? Probably not. No, I'm just, just guessing. Yeah. So you need to have a little bit of backwards empathy and remember, like I try to encourage people to do this is take a, a, the biggest things that you've changed your minds about politically and just go back and spend some time in that space and think about what persuaded you to come out of it. Like, and in most of our cases, it wasn't any one thing. It was probably a long drawn out process where you you went in stages and you observed a lot of people uh, other people arguing about that thing yeah oh, sorry my cats are fighting behind me <laughs> well i mean i think this is really crucial i mean a, a lot of times people move their opinions move around say for example same-sex relationships because their son or daughter turns out to be gay or their best friend or their sister or something and um, people change their minds, perhaps I'm, I'm guessing, but I'm assuming people change their mind about abortion when they encounter someone in an, a need for an abortion and they think, oh, I see. This is not just a, a theoretical discussion. This is a, a real life issue, right? This is, I was having this, you know, uh, difficult conversation, I'll call it, on Facebook the other day around um, protections for renters uh, with someone who was invoking economics as if it were one thing, you know. And and um, I said, look, my perspective is coming from talking to people who can't afford their rent and are being forced out onto the street in a growing homeless population. So, um, you know, my way of reasoning through an issue uh, politically is usually from the ground up, not from the top down, although I'm sort of informed. I'm obviously informed by my values, but I'm also informed by the way that my values intersect with the people that I live with in my community. And, you know, I, I just don't think we do that often enough. And when we do, I think you're absolutely right. People's minds can change. They can see that the thing that they thought was benign is actually super harmful to maybe an entire group of people. And I mean, even if you've lived a life of relative comfort, there have probably been at least a few occasions where if something disastrous had happened at just the the wrong time, you would have found yourself in that position. And I think, I think there's a defense wall that kind of goes up. Like when you're, when you're talking to women who tell you like, ex- like you're not going to be sexually assaulted if you're just not a slut, <laughs> they, they, they try mm. and make it your own responsibility. And that way they can think to themselves, I must be a virtuous person because that's never happened to me. It's, it's kind of the same with abortion. Like in addition to seeing abortion as its own immoral thing, they describe the typical person who gets an abortion as a sexually loose, immoral, uh, careless type of person. Um, 
Yeah. So that that way they can discard even the argument that um, that they possibly could find themselves in need of an abortion themselves one day. Well, we are uh, coming uh, coming to the end. I was going to say coming to the end of our time, but this is this has been gone by quickly. It's a sign of kind a, of on a depressing note. At this yeah, point. yeah, kind of a. I know, kind of a. Maybe we should find something upbeat to 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 end on here. Well, I will say that, like, if you can get somebody to talk to you long enough to let their guard down and stop playing the if. Um, that could never happen to me because I'm not that kind of person game. Um, you can have some success. Like if you can have, if you can, sometimes I, I, I really try to avoid using the word privilege because it gets people's hackles up and they, right. they only think you're talking about being wealthy or they think you are, you're saying that they're they're whatever level of success they have, they didn't do themselves. You're taking that, that hard work and the credit for it away from them. If you can, Get away from all that and just point out that, say, when you were in your 20s in, in college or, or working and you were basically living on ramen every day, uh, how would your life have gone if it turned out you got a tumor? Um, right. Yeah. That, that could put somebody on the street and, and in that case, dead very quickly. Yeah. Um, that luck is really a big part of all of our lives. Yeah, and the, I mean, there's a certain more amount of uh, that's sort of freeing, mm. or at least it is to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, because it means that I, 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 it gives me a new lens to see my own predicaments. It helps me not to blame myself when something terrible does go wrong in my in my life that I really didn't have that much control over. It helps me recognize that, and also give a little bit more credit to other people that maybe something beyond their control is, is affecting the way they're feeling today or, or just their outlook generally. And I just have to take that into account. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I just had this conversation, my previous conversation on the podcast was with James Croft and we were talking about something very similar, um, just about the way that getting close to people and taking them seriously um, listening to their stories uh, can really go a long way to humanizing uh, an issue that in the past perhaps was just theoretical to you um, and, 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 and can also allow you to show yourself a little bit of grace, as you were just saying, uh, to take, take it easy on yourself that, um, you know, we're not, we're not, um, you know, cyborgs or, or Vulcans, you know, we don't, make perfect perfectly rational decisions you know 24 7 we um, we make mistakes or we make things that maybe aren't even wouldn't even be considered mistakes but just choices that led to places that we didn't necessarily think they would lead or whatever like outcomes are uncertain and uh and i like that and and maybe one final question i could ask you for those of us listening here that are um you know would like to do something you know we all we all kind of want to like I don't know. I at least I'm this way. When I encounter a problem that that I care a great deal about, it makes me want to do something, donate some money, or get active in something. Uh, in this in this sort of current iteration of the abortion struggle, um, you know, we've gone out. Brooke and I have gone out to City Hall and stood with the Planned Parenthood folks on that uh, 
day a few days ago stop the ban uh stop the bans um um, I've donated some money to an abortion fund in Alabama. Like what, what are the kinds of things that people could do to show their support and actually try to make a little bit of a difference? Um, well, one thing that turned out to be actually pretty fortunate for um, uh, the trust women clinic here in Wichita is that they have their own uh, private parking lot with an electric gate. So uh, uh Clients can drive through that gate and then they're protected after that point. They don't have to go through the gauntlet of protesters. Oh, wow. Um, But that's partially a a luxury of of Kansas real estate being uh, pretty cheap that they can afford to have that. Um, Other clinics aren't nearly so fortunate. So if you have a clinic nearby, I would strongly consider getting trained as as an escort to help walk people in. I mean, it's, it can be a heavy and intense experience. Um, but a definitely a rewarding one. Uh, and I'm trying to focus on things that don't cost money because not all of us have that. Right. Um, but also one other thing I would, I would say is that like, as with, um, the, the Kavanaugh hearings and, um, Christine Blasey Ford's testimony at that time, it felt like everybody had to come out and talk about their own experiences being sexually assaulted. So all of these people were relating themselves raw and in, in conversations about um, reproductive rights, it's kind of the same thing all over again. People, in order to feel like they can be persuasive, people feel like they have to lay out their experiences and the cost of that is, is often taken into account. So if you have not been directly affected by um, uh, limitations on abortions or, or reproductive rights, I would suggest um, being willing to step in and, and have a patient conversation when you can see that somebody is reaching the end of their thread. Um, mm. Because like we've been talking about how to have a more empathetic conversation, how to take people's experiences into account. Not everybody can do that. Some people have had an awful day or the subject is just way too sensitive for them. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would definitely not pressure those people to, to go the, the empathetic counselor route, but we can do that for them on their behalf. Sure. Encourage people to do that. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. Um, I, I kind of take that tack with so many social justice issues where, you know, as a straight, cisgendered, you know, middle class, educated, what can I, you want me to keep going, uh, <laughs> white guy, um, I can afford to take a few lumps, you know, for, you know, issues that I wouldn't want to have to ask the uh, people directly affected by those uh, oppressions to have to constantly be explaining why they deserve to exist. So, um, but yeah, for sure. Like, I I love the idea of escorting people into helping escort folks into a clinic uh, safely. Um, I'm actually going to look that up and see if that that exists around me. It may not be as big of a need in California, but um, I'm going to have a look for that. Yeah, it kind of varies depending on the on the city you live in, but you know, it's it's worth that inquiring. For sure. Well, Gretchen, thank you so much for uh, taking the time today to talk about this issue, which is uh, of national concern, but but also touches your family quite personally and 
such a such a unique uh, angle on the whole thing and um appreciate your um the work that you're doing uh tell folks where they can uh find you uh, let's see. So giantif.com is my site where you can see the comic and there's also uh, my blog and a store and some other things uh, on Patreon. It's just Patreon uh, slash giantif. Uh, I'm also on Twitter as Gretchen Cook, K-O-C-H. Um, and uh, Facebook, you know, pretty much all the social medias if you yeah. want to get in touch with me. Cool. And I'll put links in the show notes so that if uh, if people are driving or jogging or whatever they're doing while listening to this and didn't happen to write that down, it'll all be there in the show notes uh, for you uh, to easily click on. I encourage you to uh, follow Gretchen's social media. The the comics that she does are are really um, insightful and sometimes funny and sometimes poignant and. Yeah. Sometimes, I was going to say, sometimes they are even actually funny. Yeah, right. They sometimes are even funny. Um, I have a, uh, a very beautiful freeze peach. I, I, I wish I could show it to you, but I'll link to it on the web uh, where you can buy your very own freeze peach. It's a very adorable peach inside of a clear plastic cube that is um, looks like ice. So uh, I have my freeze peach on my desk at all times to remind me to... Um, what be supportive of free speech <laughs> and to make fun in a, of in a qualified way right and make fun of people who try to use free speech to abuse other people um so yeah check out gretchen's store uh check out her blog and her comics support her on patreon she's doing great work she's an amazing uh, insightful thinker we didn't even get to talk about uh religion per se we touched on it briefly but um, maybe we'll have to have you back. Maybe another conversation. Yeah, another conversation where we can talk about um, religion. Some of our uh, personal email correspondence has been me picking your brain about, uh, you know, what's a re- what is religion? Does anybody know? Type of thing. So maybe we'll get into that one day. But thank you again so much for coming on the show. I uh, hope you've enjoyed, folks, this um, bonus episode. We went a little bit longer than usual, but in the spirit of a bonus, you got 30 extra minutes on top of it. So so that's awesome. And if you want to learn more about Life After God, you can find us on the internet at lifeaftergod.org. When you go to that site, you will likely be prompted to sign up for our newsletter, which I highly encourage. And all of our social media links are there as well. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. We're not hard to find. And love it if you would would join us there. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes if you love it. And it helps us get the word out to a wider audience. And if you want to join, become a member of the podcast and join the Facebook group for members, uh, all you have to do is join my Patreon at $5 a month. It's pretty affordable, price of an expensive latte per month. Uh, you go to patreon.com slash lifeaftergod and you can join there. Uh, there's a vibrant conversation happening on the member page that Gretchen is also a part of. And we're going to be doing later this month a live panel discussion with some um, experts in the field of grief and grief recovery, talking about grief and loss after faith, after God. Uh, One of the biggest questions that I get all the time from people that are either going through the deconstruction of their faith or have already gone through that deconstruction is what do I do with this grief that I'm feeling that before I could give to Jesus? And I know that sounds trite, but literally people, I mean, I remember giving those feelings to God and knowing that there was going to be an afterlife and a future and, 
one of the hardest things about losing your faith, or as I like to say, finding that your faith has failed you, is is um, knowing what to do with that sense of loss and anxiety around um, sort of the finality of, of death and, and the temporality of life. So if you want to learn more about that, be involved in that conversation, please uh, join up as a member. We'll send you out the link. That event will be happening on June 28th at 6 p.m. Pacific. It'll be live. Uh, it'll be recorded and re-publicized uh, for members. And, uh, and to become a member, just go to patreon.com slash lifeaftergod and sign up. You can always reach out to me if you have any questions, want to tell me how you feel about the podcast, suggestions, tell me your story. You can re- write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Thanks again so much for joining us this afternoon. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Thank you.